welcome back to the Boardroom Banter Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the journeys, ideas, and reflections of the incredible people who are building a better tomorrow. This is a conversation by builders and for builders. Whether you're building a career, your skills, a startup, or even a life that you can be massively proud of, we give you an exclusive behind-the-scenes look into the thoughts and stories of our amazing peers and mentors who are doing just that. So sit back, take a deep breath, and get ready to step into the boardroom. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Boardroom Banter podcast. I know, I know it's been a minute since you heard the local noise baker on one of these guest episodes, but here I am. My name is Barn for Samina. I'm super happy to be back behind the microphone. Um, it's been quite the summer. So last time you guys saw me, we had just popped back into Nairobi. We're almost wrapping up with the work that we're doing here, not just as a podcast, but, you know, with events and, you know, a couple of work of the work that Sean is involved in. And one of the most interesting things that we've been interacting with over the past couple of months as a podcast has been innovation, right? How do we, how do we offer you guys better services? How do we design our episodes and our, and our content to better cater to your needs as our audience? And so, you know, we recently launched our podcast on YouTube as a new platform with video, video content of Founders Friday and one guest episode. So you can find us on the new platform, right? Boardroom Banter Podcast on YouTube. And sticking with the theme that I've just mentioned, today we're going to talk about innovation, but not not with how we've we've done before with our previous our previous guests. Um, today's guest has not just studied and worked in the space, but has also written about it, blogs, articles, and fantastic books. Um, he's the associate partner at Strategizer, where he helps large companies innovate for the future. Hopefully, you he can help us on the podcast <laughs> innovate for our future. Uh, he has a PhD in psychology and an MBA, both from the University of Kent. He's also a consultant, trainer, and speaker, and has worked with companies such as Unilever, American Express, World Bank, General Electric, and so many more. Ladies and gentlemen, join me welcoming to the boardroom today, Mr. Tendai Vicky from Zimbabwe. Hello, Tendai. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. Really looking thank forward to talking so Thank you so much for joining us. How long have you been in, in Harare? So, yeah, I lived in England for 25 years, and then I moved wow. back to Harare last July. So by the end of this month, around the 29th, we would have been back home for a year. Yeah. Well, why'd you move back? Is it because um, of the cold? Is it because of the <laughs> cold right now? <laughs> yeah, I can see you in the hoodie there. Right? It's pretty cold. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 there's no central heating, right? You know, in, in Zimbabwe, I'm sure there's no central heating in Nairobi. So it's nothing cold. like that here. It's like the house. Cold. Yeah, is and yeah. so yeah. So no, the reason why I came back is it, it was just time, right? You know, I have I have young kids. You know, my oldest is four. I have a ten-year-old as well. And um, just wanted to kind of give them, you know, the African experience. It's like a philosophy, right? Like you got to give your children roots and wings so mm-hmm. they can go anywhere in the world. They can be citizens of the world. They can explore whatever yeah. things interest, sure. But they need to be grounded in something. And so this is just like 
I'm trying to give them a grounding. I don't know if it's working or not, but, but I had to give it a shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I'll circle back to that point a little bit later. But um, I'd love to give our audience context into who you are, Tendai. And what we love to do at the podcast is, you know, start with the question of, you know, who is Tendai today? And how would you describe the work that you do to a 10-year-old? And coincidentally, you do have a 10-year-old in the house. So how do you, how do you talk to your 10 year old about the work that you do? Yeah. So my, my 10 year old, when he was eight was watching a video where I say in my job, I help elephants do ballet. And he turned and he looked at me and was like, you really work at elephants. Dad? <laughs> I saw that video. He's <laughs> more impressed by that. I could potentially work with elephants <laughs> than, than I do the real work that I do. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's a metaphor to explain to him what a metaphor is. But yeah, so what I'm explaining to my son is I work with large companies who are already successful at what they do. And now they're thinking about doing something new. And the challenge they have is the way they run and manage what they already do is not exactly what they need to do in order to create something new. And so I help them design the, the processes that they can use to actually develop new ideas and products. It's almost like the paradox of success, like hidden within yeah. your success are the roots of your failure. And so you have to really always be thinking about how do I reinvent myself? How do we reinvent the company? And what are, what are the tools and methodologies for reinvention, which are different from the tools and methods for optimization and improvement, you know? So that's that's basically what I do. That's who I am today, yeah. Love it, love it. Um. We're going to link the video of the elephants for our audience to, to get exactly where your son was coming from. Um, but yeah, let's dig a bit deeper, um, Tendai. You've been in academia for over 20 years, right? Not just as a student, but also as a contributor to the field. Well, what did your early 20s look like when you were, when you were around my age? Um, I, know, I know I have a lot of facial hair, so people will probably wonder how was <laughs> How, how, how was your early 20s when you were sort of in that stage of figuring out where, where to put your roots in terms of academia? How did that look like? And what did, what did that transition into the workspace eventually turn out to look like? Yeah, so when I was 18, I was completely confused. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I was rebellious. I was in a hip-hop group. I did dreadlocks. Smoked a lot of weed. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so it, was, uh, it was that rebellious moment in life, you know, where you're trying to <clears throat> find yourself in a sense. But I, I found myself in my anger almost. Like, I was, like, just, you know, mad. And so I was just acting out my rage. And then you, and then you find out that actually... And, I've, and this is a conclusion I reached very early, like when I was like 18, 19, that if you act out your rage, the person who your rage destroys the most is yourself. And so while rage is, is rage gives you energy, it's like the young people, they got that energy, they're out on the streets, they're marching, you know what I mean? Like, they, like it gives you that energy to express yourself, but actually um, everything that's done in anger is ultimately self-destructive. And so, so you actually kind of realize, actually start thinking about, okay, how do you like reconstruct yourself? And, and one thing that I was always good at was school. Like I was always a, just a nerd. So, so I had to just jump back into my element. And then, and then I went to university and I really enjoyed university. I was always top of my class, winning scholarships, awards, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so that kind of just mapped out a path for me. And one of the things my mom always aspired for me to be was like a business exec. So she always thought that, you know, when I graduate, I should go and join a, a large company and get a car and a house, you know, the, the kind of just normal sort of thing. And I actually got an offer from one of the largest companies in Zimbabwe. And I turned it down. I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. And my mom was really upset. But I, I just knew that I wanted to be an academic. Like it was just in my heart. Like I, it was just something I, I, I aspired to be. So I ended up getting a scholarship and leaving Zimbabwe and going to the UK to study. And that set me on a different path altogether, right? I, and that's how I end up here. But at, at the moment when I was choosing to be an academic, I wasn't choosing to be what I became now. I was choosing for a career teaching psychology at a university. That's what I thought I'd be doing. And I did do that for 12 years, but then I kind of gave up that and then moved a lot into consulting. I still teach, but more on an honorary basis than a, than a full-time basis. That's super interesting. Um, one thing that I can relate with <clears throat> what you mentioned and that is that is that sort of rebellious stage. And I don't want to say, ah, it's because I'm an entrepreneur. Um, but when you look at, sort of that that phase in life right of okay i'm confused and so everyone is the enemy right and i think i think most young people you know face the same exact thing right with you know the different voices around you when you're going through this sort of phase of self-discovery what were some of the ways that you were either reassured by the voices around you or you reassured yourself and were there specific people, you know, that you you fell back to as a support system when you're sort of trying to figure this out and make and make these decisions through these transitioning phases? Yeah. So I mean, so 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 what, what's interesting is this, right? So so one thing I can tell you right now, from like a 48 year old to a 20 year old, some is you know that feeling of insecurity that you carry around with you all the time, that like tension. It Every never day. goes away. It never <laughs> goes away. That's a, that's a lifelong sentence for okay. a human being. Right? The only people that are absolutely fully 100% comfortable in their skin are like grumpy old men. But it's only because they've just like stopped caring. Right? <laughs> they're just like, okay, I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to do what I want. Because actually now that I'm 70, there's really no consequences. But for the rest of us, life is constantly throwing different things at you. So... I, I, I transitioned from being an innovator. I transitioned from being an academic into being an innovator, right? And so I was really insecure about coaching startup teams. So I'd, I'd work with startup accelerators. I'd be a rock star accelerator in Amsterdam and the team would be there and I'd be coaching them on their business model design and all this. And it was, I was insecure about that and, and very fearful. And then I mastered that, right? So you get to the part where you, you've mastered that craft of coaching. But when you master that craft of coaching, it, it always triggers another question. Like somebody else asks you a different question. As you're in the space, something else happens. Like, oh, okay, well, do you want to help us like set up an innovation board? And then you're like, yeah, sure, but I don't know what I'm doing. So then you go in there and you fumble around and you figure it out. And now I'm at a different phase, which is last week I was sitting across from a CEO. And he's asking me how to design the infrastructure of a 6,000 person organization to drive the innovation processes. And I, I knew my content, I knew my stuff, but I, I felt like an imposter. Sitting, you know, you, you call me an academic, I have a PhD, I'm associate partner, strategize, I've published, et cetera, et cetera. But sitting across from the yeah. CEO of a million dollar company, I felt like an, like, like an imposter. 
And so the conversation didn't go as well as I wanted it to because I wasn't yet comfortable in my skin. And so I walked out of that like with the same, the same angst you had yesterday when you did something. I walked out of that conversation with that same like, oh man, I should have done this. I should have been this way. I should have, next time when that happens again, I'm going to, but I wonder whether it'll ever, would I ever get another chance to win another CEO? So it, it never goes away. And so the maturity of, of growing up is this, is this understanding that life will always be challenging. There will never be a moment when life is not challenging. And so the goal is to always make yourself better and push yourself and surround yourself with people that help you advance yourself, right? If you surround yourself with people that are always mad, always hating, always denigrating, always dissing, then you, you, you're the sum total of the 10 people you spend the majority of your time around. And so you have to make those choices quite deliberately, right? It's, it's, a, it's a deliberate choice that you have to make. I love that. I love that. One thing, one thing I'm getting here, Tendai, is, you know, through all of these feelings and emotions, you know, of, of feeling like an imposter and, you know, coming out and, oh, I should have done this because we get it all the time. I'm going to leave this podcast and someone's going to come to me in a couple of hours. Oh, I should have asked and I had that question. And so, right. and so you're pairing up, you know, expectations versus reality, right? And only one of these things is within your power to change. And I feel like that's, that's expectations. And from what we just said, you know, one thing that also features hand in hand with both of these is the success metrics, right? When you were, when you were progressing through all of these different shifts from academia, you know, to an innovator and coaching, right? What were some of the expectations on yourself that you had to sort of go back to the drawing and be like, okay, maybe this, I overshot on this one, right? Or Mm -hmm. I overestimated what I'm able to, to accomplish in this space. And were there, were there specific mental infra was that specific mental infrastructure that you had to develop for yourself you know as you were progressing in your career would you say mental or mentor Men- both okay i said mental but that's a good <laughs> like, idea as well <laughs> i got you right there <laughs> but yeah <laughs> all right cool so when i was an academic when i was an academic when i got my phd and i was teaching the, men- the metrics of success were very clear. Like you're supposed to do research and publish high-ranking journal articles and 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 books. And the structure of pay was was public because it's government pay, right? You, you, if you're a lecturer at level eleven, you get this much. When you're a lecturer at level twelve, you get this much. So your goal was just to move from level to level, and the metrics were moving from level to level were very clear. You publish papers, you win research grants. Then you, but then, and, then, and then there's a form that you fill every time you want a promotion. And, and it just says, since the last time you applied, to put the research grants here. Since the last time you applied, put your publications here. And then an independent person goes, oh, yeah, okay, give them the promotion. And so that's, it was very clear what the path would be. It wasn't that hard to decide what I would be, uh, what the journey would be. The metric that was hardest was the financial metric, because when you're an academic, you don't get paid that well. And there's demands on you from family and kids and all that. And so while I was getting a lot of satisfaction because I love just the, the intellectual life, I love the deep life, right? It's something that I, I'm very drawn to. It was also kind of had a tension with this sort of 
financial life. And, and the place where I found to resolve that way, I get both the deep life and the, and, and the financial life is to move into consulting and advising companies. And so once you step out into that world, now you have to design your own metrics. And that's where you now need mentors, people who've done it before. And so, you know, right. I, and I've been lucky to be surrounded by really great mentors. I have, a, I have a good friend and close colleague. His name is Tim Deason. He like took me under his wing and he showed me a few things. Alex Osterwalder, the guy who's invented the business model canvas. You know, I count him as a friend and a mentor. I was just with him last weekend. And so it is, it is those folks that you can then start to use as benchmark to say, okay, so the one thing, so the, so the one metric you can use, for example, as a thought leader is how many inbound requests do you get for work? Like how many people just out of the blue go, hey, Tendai, would you like to come to our podcast? Or, hey, Tendai, would you like to come and give a keynote? Hey, Tendai, we're struggling with this challenge. And so when I first started, I had zero requests. I had a book, but nobody was reaching out to me. So at that moment, you know that you're, you're at a different stage in your career. And then over time, you start to build that kind of snowball and, and, and then you start to get maybe comfortable with that because it's a way to build a career, yeah. Beautiful. And I think this is a perfect, perfect segue into, into some of your writing, right? That, you know, has been informed by your, by your career choices. Um, you've written three books, correct? There was Lean Product Lifecycle, Corporate mm-hmm. Startup. I felt, I felt the corporate startup was more targeted to established companies, right? Um, managerial yeah. sort of, but then Pirates in the Navy is what I've had the most fun time reading, right? And it's, it's been challenging me as an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur, right? Because that's right. sort of what I feel, you know, the, the target market was. Yeah. But, you know, with one of the things that you mentioned in, in your previous, you know, your previous keynotes, right? Is before investing a single dollar in innovation, we need to take a point of view on where the world is going and how we will use innovation to respond. Now your book was published in 2020. I don't know if you sort of knew where, where the world was going, but it seemed like you did. Um, I think one of the first questions I'd be curious about is, you know, why did you write this book and who was it for right. at the time? Well, yeah, so, so, so there's a couple of things there and I'm just gonna go back a little bit before I answer your question. Let's go. So, Let's go. so in, in order to some, my work, I'm not a used car salesperson or like a, you know, window sales guy, right? My, yeah. my the success of my work is based on what we call gravity, which is the extent to which you draw people to you. I cannot cold call people for consulting gigs. People have to be like reaching out to me and interacting with me day to day. And so you have to create a sense of gravity. So in, in a really great book by Jeff Gothoff, the book is called Forever Employable. He says one of the things that a thought leader has to do is you have to plant a flag. You have to occupy a space. You have to go, boom, this is my, what I'm going to be known yeah. for, right? Yeah. And so yeah. the corporate startup, which was my favorite, which was my first book, and also actually one of my favorite books, um, it was my plant flagging book. It's the biggest book I've ever written. It's got the most content, yeah. it's visually. And so it was just like, okay, I work in innovation within large companies. That's what I do. And so this is the book. And it was nice. It was a bestseller. It won a lot of awards best book in entrepreneurship from the corporate entrepreneurship. So it, it was nice um, yeah. for that to happen. And then the Lean Product Lifecycle was just an, a model for designing successful products, which is what we had established at Pearson when I, when I, when I worked there. 
Pirates in the Navy was from the heart. So Pirates in the Navy was, <laughs> was like, I've been working in this to space the world. for five years. Exactly. Like, I've been working in this space for five years. And here's all the dumb stuff that I see innovators do. Yeah. Like, like, like entrepreneurs. So it was from me to other entrepreneurs just go, listen, here are, here are the mistakes you're making. You do, you're not Elon Musk and you don't work in a company full of idiots. Yeah. You're right. Carry yourself with a little bit of humility. Uh, please make sure that you're doing things that create value versus things that are enjoyable and fun. Right. All of these things were things that I was kind of just putting out into the world to kind of help, help, help people figure out. Yeah. Brilliant. What was, you know, from, from the conversations that you've had, you know, that, that I've, I've seen you having um, online and, and some of the writing that you've done within the book itself, you write it in first person and you say we as entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. And from what we just yeah. hinted at, you know, this is also something, must be something that you've you faced, not just observed, but also faced, and you wanted to see something change. What was that specific change you'd wanted your book to, to trigger in entrepreneurs and trickle over right. to how companies are, are run and how they approach innovation? Right. So... So one of the things that, that that happens in the innovation space is that a lot of the things we do are really cool. Like yeah. a lot of the tools we use are, are actually fun. You know, post-it notes, sticky notes, hackathons, all of this stuff. It's all really cool and yeah. fun. <laughs> you get your sticky. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> but what happens is it can actually result in like a lot of you know, in, inauthentic behavior. Like you, we can just have the fun part and forget the value creation part. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to reach and say like, the most successful people in innovation and in the world are people who are authentic in their pursuits. In fact, it's just general life principle. Like the more authentic you are yeah. and true you are, the more, the more valuable you are, the more integrity you have. And so what is integrity in innovation? Well, there's only two forms of integrity. One is understanding that your job is not to have ideas. Your job is to navigate ideas to successful businesses. That's what, that's like, you know, mm. the first authentic thing that you need to embrace. And so if we embrace that, that first principle, then it, leads, then it inevitably leads to a second principle, which is if you're working inside large organizations, there's no way you can go from idea to business without collaborating with people in the business. True. You could True. never do it by yourself. You need support from marketing, you need support from sales, you need support from all of these various functions within the organization. And so the next level of, of authenticity you have is you have to be authentically seeking to build good relationships and good collaboration with your colleagues, rather than thinking you're the smart entrepreneur, you're going to save the company from disruption, yada, 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 right? And so I had to, that's what I was bringing to the table, which is what does an authentic innovator look like? What does an authentic entrepreneur look like? And, 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 And I was quite passionate about that because let's take, for example, for myself, right? The ability to build relationships. I remember when I first started, I gave this talk and I was just, you know, making fun of the company and like, you're going to see this sucks. You're not good at this. Look at this other thing. Let's see the world is better than you and all this stuff. Right. And afterwards, one of the execs walked up to me and was like, you know, Tendai, I have nothing to disagree with on what you said in terms of content. Mm-hmm. I just hate the way you made me feel. So even though I agreed with you, I hated the way you made me feel. So it makes me resistant to the idea. And so it suddenly right. teaches you that actually you have to bring people with you. Nobody owes you to listen to you. You have to kind of bring mm-hmm. people along. And that allows you to sort of build that, you know, authentic humility that you have to bring to the conversation. 
I love what you're saying, Tendai, and I'm looking back at some of the work that I've done in the startup space, right? So 2019, finished high school in 2018, right? And then 2019 was my first gap year. And I took part in this program for the first half of the year and then spent the rest of the year building a startup that came from that program. So we're building a Tinder for internships. So this was the pitch. Let me make the pitch for you, Tendai. So <laughs> you, you really lost me at Tinder for intentions. I'm already like, I'm not investing. <laughs> Don't bust my bubble that. You didn't even get the value proposition. <laughs> uh, but go ahead anyway. But you know what's crazy? Right, let's put a pin on right. that for a second. You know what's crazy? We, Yuri and I were doing a program at the Watson Institute in Colorado at that last half of the year. So we were right. building our, our Tinder for internships, right? an, an online matchmaking platform to connect interns to different work opportunities. And right. Yuri was right. building a solution to, you know, to help students, eight students in, in achieving rather securing opportunities for postgraduate, rather undergraduate in the United States. Right. And right. one right. of the masterclasses that we had was a venture capitalist. And he literally said, you, when you're pitching, right, you lose a venture capitalist in the first 10 seconds yeah. of the pitch, right? And, and I think you hinted at this, you hinted at this as well, right, of how VCs choose winning ideas. Mm-hmm. And it's back mm-hmm. to expectations, right? And so when I look at some of the work that I was doing in the startup space, and the people that I was doing it with, a lot of it did involve carrying people with me, right? The podcast I run with, um, with you and Sean, I do it with my friends. The events that we do, I also do it with my friends. And so were different aspects of the, the startup, the, uh, the matchmaking platform. And so I hear you speak a lot about, you know, different values, right? You mentioned authenticity, your integrity, humility, right? What, why are these values important on top of just the great ideas that innovators come up with and, and are pitching not just, you know, as entrepreneurs to VCs and whatever, but also internally to, to line managers? Because you mentioned, you know, this feedback that you got, the gentleman or, rather, or lady mentioned that, you know, I didn't like how you made me feel, right? So I'd be mm. resistant to that. How, how can entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs, right, people in the innovation space, tie their ideas and their communication of these ideas and root them in the values that you mentioned, right, of integrity in the work, of humility in, in, in your interactions with people, right, as well as, as well as authenticity generally in the work that you do? Yeah, so there's a really great essay by Paul Graham. He is the founder of Y Combinator. Um, mm. And it's about, it's, I, think it's a, I think the title of the essay is How to Create Wealth, I think. And, and, and he makes this really interesting distinction. He says, you know, when you have conversations with entrepreneurs and you ask them what business is for and say business is for making money, mm. you know that immediately that they don't really understand what business is for in the sense that money is a medium for exchange. Do you know what money is like? Money is like when you were a kid and the radio was playing and you went to look behind the radio to see who's talking. Wow. <laughs> right? The right, radio exactly. is, a, is a medium. It's really, the radio is just a platform for broadcast, 
for, for, yeah. for, for exchanging. And so money is a platform. So if, if money is a platform, then what is it a platform for? Well, money is a platform for exchanging value. There should be value on both sides. Like I should receive value and you should receive value. And the way we measure that value has been delivered is mm. in the exchange of the currency. And if you are somebody who's making money, but you're not delivering value in economics, they call that rent seeking. It's called rent seeking behavior, which is you're occupying a space and absorbing resources to yourself, but you're not actually giving resources giving back. Back, yeah. Right. So there's no exchange. So basically what you've done is you're basically true value. And so when you're rent seeking, um, you know, when you're not in a sustainable, when you're rent seeking, you're not, you, you don't have a sustainable, it doesn't last. You, mm. Your children can't inherit rent seeking. You can't true. scale rent seeking, right? Because because there's no value being created there. So it's moment to moment deals or whatever you call it. And so these values matter because what they are universal in the sense that they're also what we call first principles. And first principles yeah. are principles which you can't reduce further. Like they, 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 there's no corollary to a first principle. It's just that. Like it's yeah. money for exchanging value. That's a first principle. If you don't know that, you can't have a creative business. So understanding that then means that when you're doing a startup, the first question you have to ask yourself is, who am I creating value for? What problems am I solving and for whom? And are those problems large enough for that person to be willing to give me value back? Right. It, that's, a, that's, an, that's an authentic principle for building a business. And then if you want to build a scalable business, you can go, well, how many people have that problem? How mm-hmm. easily accessible are those people, et cetera, et cetera. And so asking yourself the question about the value you're creating causes you to become more authentic about your idea and in the way you evaluate your idea. Because you can't lie to yourself when you ask yourself that question. No, you can't lie to yourself. And, yeah. and, and, and even if you do, your startup will fail. And so you have to tell yourself the, the truth about that. If you don't, the market will tell you the truth. Yeah. So, so that's at the base, at the very base level of like entrepreneurship 101. The more sophisticated entrepreneur then starts to think about their own personal values and connect that to the kinds of problems they want to solve. Now they've gone beyond just having the startup and you know yeah. figuring out how to create value and get money back. And now they're thinking, well, actually, I'm the kind of person who enjoys solving these kinds of these kinds of problems. I'm the kind of person who who enjoy solving problems for young people and how they figure out what they want to do in life. And that can involve creating a podcast or creating a, a Tinder for internships <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is. But the problem space is the same. And what you're trying to figure out is now the value proposition. And you're kind of committed yourself to understanding this space. And it's something that resonates with you somehow at a, at a, at a, at a personal level. What you can't do and be successful mm. in the, you can be successful in the short term but you can't be successful in the long term is to be is to pretend that you care about young people because eventually you'll be found out. It's, do you know, and do you know how you get found out? Have you ever seen like those 16 year olds that are singing Whitney Houston songs? Like you broke my heart. Like nobody ever broke your heart. <laughs> you got a good voice and everything, but, but you have no idea what you're thinking about. The voice is nice, but as an audience, we can sense that there's no connection between the person yeah. and the song. And that's, really what people start to sense if you're an inauthentic entrepreneur or, or, or entrepreneur. And, and really that's why these values matter. I can relate this to, to one of my favorite comedians and <clears throat> entrepreneurs and actors, Kevin Hart. 
And right. he speaks about, are you a fan as well? Please tell me you're a fan. No, well, I mean, oh. it's too young. It's too young for me to be. <laughs> I'm, from, I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the Chris Rock generation. So. Ah, okay. I see yeah. you. All right. <laughs> but he, yeah. he speaks about his journey um, when he first stepped into comedy. And I hope he listens to this podcast episode one day. But um, he says how initially it was, you know, him just making jokes on very generic aspects of either, either race or, you know, looking at what other comedians are making jokes about and just copying the same thing. But then where he really hit a niche is when he started talking about his family and his own life, right? And that now spoke to the authenticity and that has really driven mm-hmm. his career, right from comedy you know to acting to venture capital as well and and i think i think that's one of the one of the aspects from what you mentioned that i really love and you know going back to your book you mentioned some aspects of human barriers to transformation when you speak about you know transformation versus growth and how Mm -hmm. aspects such as inertia doubt and cynicism and the cynicism aspect i feel like you with what you hinted at ties back to the authenticity, right? And how, how are you, how are you, you know, embodying humility in, in your work? Are there, are there instances over the past couple of years that that has really, you know, what you said, gravity, right? Mm. It, it achieved the opposite, right? Of you notice cynicism in people and I don't want to work with you or I don't want to, you know, to bring you along and carry you. And what, what, how did you approach such, such decisions when it came to the human aspect of business? Yeah, so that's interesting. So, so one of the things that happens if you get a Twitter following or a LinkedIn following is the trolls show up and they just are like, like, <laughs> they're like dissing you on your timeline, whatever. And I don't respond. Like I have a policy that I don't even respond. Like I don't care. Like, like if people like start like, yeah. Yeah. The only time I ever responded was one time when a person actually recorded a video and mentioned me as the introduction to his diss. So, so, so that was the only time oh that I, I never like, I never was like, yo, dude, stop using me as a straw man for your phony argument. I never say those mm-hmm. things. But, it, but that's, that was, a, that was the only time I ever responded. And people were actually surprised because I don't, and I don't typically get into yeah. Twitter beef or LinkedIn beef. Um, but the thing that I really hate about the cynic is that the cynic is actually working against themselves too. They're like, yeah, this transformation will never work. Uh-huh. We're never going to be able to innovate inside this company. You can feel everything's wrong with it. We're never going to be able to innovate. Yeah. And then when the company fails to innovate, they're like, see, I told you. I told you. <laughs> We're never going to be able to innovate. It's like, yeah, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more you believe that, the less effort you put into changing. And yeah. then that's ultimately yeah. self-defeating because you then get the result. But you don't actually want the results. Like what you actually want is for the company to be able to innovate. So the cynic is like mm-hmm. a very strange, it's a very strange psychological space to be. And um, like psychological research actually shows that the pessimist always sounds more intelligent than the optimist. Like the optimist always sounds like an idiot. Like if you want to sound smart, wow. just say some, some pessimistic stuff, right? And people are like, oh yeah, of course, that's really like, that's a smart analysis. And the yeah. optimist always yeah. sounds like they're naive or, and yet actually... Wow. Even the pessimist, wow. even the even the pessimist would benefit if the things the optimist is talking about came true. Great. 
And so, like, why, why is, <laughs> why is the pessimist more celebrated? And That's so, it's, so crazy. It's a very strange. It's a very strange dilemma there. So, when you're you, you cannot be an entrepreneur if you don't have hope. It's impossible. Like, you have to have you have mm. to have um, ridiculous kinds of hope, like senseless hope. You know, you have to keep pursuing these things. And then, of course, you have to balance it out with information from the market and pivot and change direction. But mm. the momentum to get started is is really just hope. Yeah. One of the things that that you mentioned here and also in the book is is what I'm getting the the iterative aspect of entrepreneurship, and um I recall when when the COVID pandemic hit, Airbnb took a really big hit, right? And and Brian Chesky was on Masters of Scale speaking about so he was he was on there twice, Masters of Scale podcast, and the first time was was before he sort of made it out of that chasm and and afterwards right and one of the things that he spoke about is how they had to go back to the first principles and you mentioned this as well going back to the first principles okay of okay what does what what are we who are we as airbnb at the core right and answering such first principle questions informed the the next decision and the next decision and and sort of growing out of that and coming out bigger and stronger when all this was happening in 2020, I feel like it was it was the biggest test for companies, right? It was the biggest test for leaders in companies, yeah. right? Yeah. What were some of the conversations going on at the time that you were privy to with regards to how different companies were approaching this, whether you, you were amongst the people making these decisions or you were in the consult- consultancy role and what were some of the differentiating factors between those who made it out and those who didn't mm, mm. So, so 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 it's interesting right there's um so the one thing that you so the one thing that you don't want to do is go into a crisis and be in debt and I, and I and i say this in a metaphorical sense in the sense that like you don't want to be like in debt with a very high mortgage, you owe your mom, you owe your cousin, you have credit card debt, you have you have zero savings, and then you lose your job. Because that crisis will destroy you, like it will take you out. Like you don't have space to think when you're in that situation. And so if you if you translate that to 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 companies, you really don't want to go into a crisis without any portfolio of innovations, any new things you're launching, any interesting ideas. You're not even like, you don't even have the latest technology. You've been dismissing remote work, but it's been around forever, but you've been dismissing it the whole time. You don't have the right laptops. You don't have an account, a Zoom. You don't have anything. Because you're not, you're really like, but when you get a heart attack, it's, it's too late to start jogging. Like you have to do it before. And so that, was the real struggle. Companies that were already, already had the innovation muscle, their conversation were, were, was, was, was really different. It was just like, okay, well, how do we use this muscle to, to respond to what has happened? And the companies that didn't have the muscle, it's just thinking, oh, how does the innovation muscle work? What are we going to do next? Right? But you're doing it in the middle of the crisis. Like you're losing revenue. The world is shut down. And so those companies found it really, really hard. And in, in, in the conversations that I, that, that I was having with, 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 with various organizations, and so some companies responded by let's batten down the hatches, let's get rid of people and, you know, protect the organization and just wake this out. And I think coming out of the pandemic, those companies probably have benefited less 
And then there were companies that were like, oh, this is the right moment for us to test this thing that we've been thinking about and test another thing that we've been thinking about, this other thing that we've been thinking about. And those companies will definitely come out of the pandemic much better than they were when, when they actually went in, you know. So, so it's, a, it's a very interesting dynamic to observe. And I've been pulling my hair sometimes when I by some of these leaders. I love, I love that you, you've, you've gone back to the book, something else that you mentioned, right, of, of the myths in innovation. Of, of let let a thousand flowers bloom <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah. and so you know from what you just mentioned that the companies where okay this is the time to see which flower will will get us out of this right yes how do you how do you mitigate risk when it comes to responding to responding to change through innovation right of okay all hands on deck um like parts of the caribbean all hands on deck <laughs> see what i did there <laughs> but yeah all hands on deck let's see okay who has the best best solution out of this and how do you mitigate right. risk as we test them out what are some of the things that you advise companies on when it comes to you know letting all the flowers bloom within the confines of yeah. of the risk factors yeah absolutely so i was um i was at gulp it's a portuguese oil company last week and I was watching uh, uh, an MIT guy give a keynote. His name is Paul Cheek. And he said, as an innovator, you need two things. You need the spirit of a pirate and the discipline of a Navy SEAL. Right? Those are the two things that you have to have together. And so the way you mitigate risk is you don't go all in on any one thing. You actually test and iterate. So if you decide that this is the solution that we want to, what, what we're going to do is we're going to have... Uh, rather than people coming in physically to the restaurant, we're going to start delivering, right? You, what is the smallest thing we can do today to see if people want our food delivered? What are the risks that are involved around the business model, right? What do we want to do risk first? What's the pricing? Is it, is it, is it making make sure we have the right vehicles? Is it making sure you have to systematically work through the business model and, until you, and you have to do it fast. In a crisis, you have to do it fast. Let's do it within the week and then go, no, that's not going to work. Let's pick something else. And you go, no, that's not going to work. Let's pick something else. And you have to keep, you, you have to go fast to actually do that. If you do it outside of crisis, you've got time because you can run your core business and test ideas. And so the companies that did that really well were companies that were constantly learning and just changing. Um, the way to mitigate risk in almost everything in life is not to go all in on day one. Like, you know, you, you meet a girl, you go on one date, next week you're married. You're <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Right. And, and, but that's what companies do. Like a, a team will come in and they'll pitch an idea and it's like, okay, here's the 2 million. It's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Give them 50,000 and ask them key questions they have to answer first before you double down the investment. And so that's really what you want to do is you want to be building and building and building the risk profile by making small bets at each moment and only increasing the size of the bet as you know more. Mm, I love that. That's a, that's a really good understanding not just for companies as well but for for startups and entrepreneurs i think that's something that i'm definitely going to take home one of the last things i was curious about tendai is with the different books that you've written and articles and conversations that you've had in the past about innovation have you ever gotten to a point where you found out something new that makes you revisit some held beliefs that you had and like even with the books and writings, you're like, ah, I, sh- I should go and edit that part out. <laughs> and, yeah. and what are some of these things that 
that you've that you've unlearned about innovation and how to relearn? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, one of the things that's really important is the importance of leadership support, right? So in Parsons Navy is written for for, for for innovators and how they can transform their organization, but they can only go so far. So as much as it's a strongly held belief, you, you, you have to start revising that and thinking, okay, what is the part? How far can an innovator go and how, how can the leader meet them halfway? And that's something that you have to sort of, you know, you know, you know, start thinking about. If you look at the corporate startup, which is my first book, I have a whole bunch of tools in there. And I'm just like, man, what was I thinking? Because the tools I have now are different from those tools, the way you assess an idea, the way you design a portfolio. All of the things have changed now because I've been out in the field using the tools. And you can really see that people don't understand what that is. You have to make that simpler. And then you come back and you and you make it simpler. Now it looks different from what's in the book. And so, but that's just the way it is. I think, I don't think you can, I think that's the worst thing that a person can ever, that's so inauthentic, right? You learn something new, but you keep saying the wrong thing because it's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a way to live life. I don't think I can ever do that. Isn't that how most of our, like, allow me to say this, uh, isn't that how most of our education systems are? Like, how how regularly uh, are our curriculums revised to reflect the current world that we're living in, right? Of, silly example, right? we were taught how to write recipes and memos and letters in in school and tested on that but in the real world okay i'm sending emails and yeah. just just as a funny example as a yeah. funny example yeah so, i mean when i was at university i was a statistics teacher and i, I learned statistics by hand you had a yeah. calculator and you were doing but there's a there's like software now so so nobody needs to know how to do the statistic by hand unless like one day like there's no internet no computers but it's not really going to happen so what they really need to know now rather than the math is they need to know the principles for making the mm-hmm. choice of choosing the right analysis so they need so so, so, so teaching change when i started teaching statistics in the uk we started focusing yeah. more on the principles of how do you know which statistic is the right statistic for the pro- for the question you have in front of you and then once the program gives you output how do you interpret that output as the answer to your question? And how do you then yeah. represent it as you, as you do presentation? It's a completely different skill set. And even the exams now, we, they, we bring the software to the exam. They work on the software. Because yeah. it's, not a, it's not a realistic, like I can't say, well, uh, children nowadays, when I was younger, <laughs> we used to use the abacus, whatever. <laughs> it just doesn't, it's not a useful, it's not a useful to, perspective to take. The True. goal of education, people to be successful once they step out into the world and if we're not doing that then you know we're failing i love that i love that and i this is this has been a, a breath of fresh air um this conversation and i Thank think you. i think it's it informs a lot of work that you know we're personally doing as entrepreneurs but not just that but as leaders as well right on and how can we how can we design ecosystems within the workspace that accommodate entrepreneurs and accommodate innovation? I think that's one of the that's one of the most amazing things that you know that I'm taking out of this, and mm-hmm. definitely recommend to the view um, to the viewers and listeners to to hop on uh, pirates in the navy as well as corporate startup. 
Um, as we come yeah. to the end of this, and I, I think it's one of my most favorite segments called the elevator elevator pitch. So, so imagine yourself walking out of the boardroom, right? We've we had this marvelous conversation about innovation and a buzzing intern, you know, calls you down as you, <laughs> as you walk to the elevator and has a couple of questions to ask you as you, as you get it. So think of it like an elevator, elevator pitch. Right, rapid fire, <laughs> rapid fire questions. Are you are you ready for this, Tendai? Yeah, for sure. Beautiful. So for the first, uh, the first question, and think you know we may have hinted hinted at this before, but I'd love to hear to you answer your answer to this. Um, what are some of the things that you do not compromise on when it comes to your work and the people that you work with? Yeah. So. I think the most important thing about life is you have to make choices about the kind of person you're going to be. Mm. What kind of human being are you going to be and what are your values and what are your principles? So, you know, don't, I, 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 I don't compromise on quality of work. I don't compromise on professionalism. If I'm in a, if I'm in a, if I'm in a conflict, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't compromise on wanting to win the conflict to compromise on wanting to find collaborative solutions. Yeah. If I, if I, you know how like people are like negotiating with a guy on the street that's selling something for $3. Like, yeah. Like they want, they want it for two fifty. Like <laughs> give the guy $5. Like he's standing five. in the sun. Yeah. Like it's such a, like it's such a, it's such a hollow victory for a middle-class person. Mm-hmm to jerk a poor person of 50 cents. Like it's, 50 that's insane. Like, I, so I, so you don't compromise on that. Don't compromise on giving good tips when you're at a restaurant. When you're at a restaurant. That, that changes somebody's life, right? That $5 will change people's life. So those are the kind of things that I, I really, I, I, I think about as I, as I kind of trying to live my life, this idea that there's a distinction between your professional being and your actual being, this is a lie. You have to bring your authentic self to work and you have to be genuinely honest and real, you know, as, as you, as you do the thing. That you do. I love that. I love that. On that note, Tendai, with your, with the different <clears throat> spaces that you've worked and, and your studies up, your studies of human psychology, what's some of the thing, what's one interesting thing that you've observed about human beings and human behavior? That's just, if it doesn't make sense or is this super crazy for you to discover? Yeah. So you mean, so the, the, I've been fascinated a lot with behavioral economics. Okay. Like if you want to just dive into the inter- interesting thing about, about human beings is that like, we're all predictably irrational, which is the title of a really great book, but we're all predictably, predictably irrational in exactly irrational. the same way. Like, yeah, irrational. irrational. Yes. Uh-huh. We tend to think of like irrational behavior is unique like each person is irrational in their own way but yeah. actually we're all irrational in the same way like we all okay. have loss aversion for example which is we feel losses the pain from loss is more than the, the the joy from gains and so that's why people should never look at the stock market every day because if the stock market is down it'll take you like 20 gains for you to make up for that one down like the way you feel yeah and, and that's called loss aversion there's, there's so many other things like, you know, people will tell you to drive for 10 miles to find the dollar 29 fuel. But yeah. when they're buying a car, they're, they're spending 50 grand and the guy says, 
the class seat covers are only 5,000 more. They go, oh, I'm already spending 10, so what's 5,000 more? They spend yeah. more. And then in that same car, they spend five grand at a whim. So once they get in that car, they start driving around trying to save two cents on a gallon of fuel. On a gallon. So of people fuel. are like predictably rational, like just context influences so much of what we do, but in a but in a predictable way, which is something that I, I didn't know before. Okay. And so this gives okay. you like an interesting superpower when designing products, for example. And also like yes. you can help yeah. people for sure. Or you can actually take advantage of some of this predictable irrationality that people have. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing research on that. Actually, you have to. <laughs> if you're an entrepreneur, you have to do research on that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, two more questions, Tendai. What's one habit that you picked up over the course of the pandemic that you know, really improved you know, how you work or how you, how you lead your life? Walking. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Like exercise? No, no, no. Walking. <laughs> Not exercise. Going Walking. for walk. Okay. Going for long walks. Yeah. Because again, we were locked down. I, I was in England during the pandemic. I was still living in the UK. So we were that locked down. Crazy. You only got one hour. You were allowed to go out for like one hour or whatever. Like you dedicated walk. So my wife and I, we just walked and walked and walked. And it was, it was, it was transformative. You know, I used to wake up, do a little bit of exercise and work all day. But walking mm. is really great for just thinking and solving problems. And so, yeah, so that's one thing that I definitely took out of the pandemic that I didn't used to do before. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and lastly, Tendai, if you, were, if you were to have a billboard in the sky, right, and metaphorically communicate a message to millions of people every single day, what would you, what would you want written on your billboard? Oh, man. Da-da-da. Da-da. <laughs> What would I want to have written on my billboard? Oh, yeah. This is one of my favorites, actually. But, but this, okay. is, this, this is going to change next week. But dig the well before you're thirsty. Dig the world before you're thirsty. No, dig the well. Dig the well before you're thirsty. Before you're... Okay. That's a good message right there. Right. We're going to get... A, that's, a, that's an innovative message, right? That's, a, that's an innovation yeah. message. We're innovate get before you, you need to <laughs> dig the well before you're thirsty love that love that tendai um as we wrap this up where where can people find your book and why why is it important that you get that message out right now to to the specific audience that you that you intended it to go to yeah, so www.tendaiviki.com. That's how you can get in touch. And also mm-hmm. on Amazon. It's a my 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 the Pirates in the Navy is a Amazon print on demand product because I'm self-publishing yeah. it. And so so that's where you can get um you know Pirates in the Navy. I think that you know, you know, the the work I do speaks to a to a deeper human condition, which is the complacency that comes from success. And so I, that, that's why I think the work that I do matters, which is, you know, what is the, how do you make yourself uncomplacent? Yeah. And, and yeah. So, and, and, and what are the tools for that? Brilliant. That's a beautiful note to, to end this conversation on Tendai, This has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. Um, not just for myself and my team, but to the lovely listeners who have tuned in for this and, you know, we will definitely hold close to our, our heart the the lessons and value you know, that you shared from your experience or from the work that you do thank you so so much tendai vicky yeah thank you man really appreciate you bringing me on <laughs>